If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We will read verses 48 through 59. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. If you would pray with me. Oh, Father, you truly are worthy of all praise. Let all creation praise your name. Father, we thank you that in this glorious passage we can see that the Creator entered creation out of mercy and love. God, we pray that as we dig now into the text of Scripture and we think and meditate upon the glories of your Son, that you would come and meet with us, that your Spirit would be moving upon us, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all the more about the glories of your Son that we would move from glory to glory as we behold him. And Lord, that you'd be working in the hearts of those who do not know you. They're on a different road. Father, would you come, please, in power, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Just good to be back with you again. Well, yesterday's tragic... Events in Israel show us once again the truth of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is true. Romans 8 says the whole world is groaning in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the day that the world is released from its bondage to corruption and that the true sons of God are revealed. Every war, every murder, Every kidnapping, every natural disaster, every plague, every famine, it all just testifies to the curse that is upon this world. 
And all of it is rooted in one word, sin. And because of humanity's sinfulness in this age, there will be no end to the hostility of the human heart. We live in a hostile world, and we see that all the more every day. But the fact is, Jesus entered into a hostile world. It's nothing new to our day. When seeing and being confronted, though, with what humanity is capable of, when seeing the reports of what's happening all over the world, the evil atrocities that are being committed by man against his fellow man, it should remind us that we should marvel at the fact that God had mercy at all. That God saw fit to come and have mercy upon a humanity that is capable of such atrocities is the wonder of wonders. But he did. Jesus entered this hostile world and became the object of hostility himself so that God would show mercy to a sinful people. It is just incomprehensible grace what God has done. And all of that is on vivid display in our passage today that we are looking at. As we continue in the Gospel of John, we have finally reached the the climax of this conflict that has been building for two chapters. And it ends where it began. All of this began with the introduction of the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7. And Jesus was waiting for the right time to make His appearance at the festival for a very particular reason that John had explicitly brought out. In fact, flip back with me to the beginning of chapter 7 so we can be reminded of this. Look at what he says. He says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. When Jesus finally did go to the Feast of Tabernacles, he knowingly entered into a hostile environment to proclaim the truth. He knew they wanted to kill him. He knew murderous intent was on the hearts of his people towards him. And yet he went anyway. And he pointed them to the truth. And as we see in our passage today, the truth that he was proclaiming was was so odious to his audience that they could not help themselves. They would rather pick up stones to kill him than believe the glory of what he was proclaiming. But there is much to be learned and gleaned from in this final exchange of this section. As believers, Jesus here gives us a model on how to engage this hostile world. And no doubt, we are in need of a model in the culture we find ourselves in. We are no longer in a society that is affirming or even merely tolerant of our faith. We live in a society that is outright hostile to the Christian faith. It's hostile to the image of God. It's hostile to biblical sexual ethics. It's hostile to the exclusivity of Christ. It's hostile to the doctrine of hell. 
It is hostile to the truth. And that hostility is only going to increase as time goes on. Not only should we be thinking about this, these things for ourselves, but we should be preparing our children for these things. They are going to be facing much worse things than those who have gone before us like our grandparents ever even dreamed of. And in the midst of it all, we, we want to be found faithful. And we want our future generations to be found faithful. We want to be ambassadors for the truth in a world that hates the truth. We want to be like Christ. So as we look at this climactic end to this confrontation, I want us to consider three truths from Christ that should affect the way we live in this world. His example, His promise, and His identity. And when the implications of this are understood rightly, this is one of the most glorious and comforting passages in all of the Bible. The clarity of who Jesus is, the beauty of what He has promised, and how He lived brings out great comfort and joy to those who have ears to hear. And it should radically transform the way we live out our lives on this earth. So let's, let's start working through this, starting with just the example of Christ. Look with me at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now at this point, the Jews have hit a boiling point. Jesus shed light on who they really are, and they cannot bear it. If you remember from, from last week, the back and forth between Jesus and the Jews, these Jews or this argument became an argument over paternity. Who one's true spiritual father is. The Jews claim to be the children of Abraham and thus the children of the one true God. But Jesus denied them that reality and instead told them that their true father was in fact the devil and that they are following in his ways. Now, this was no doubt an inconceivable thought for these Jews. Denying their Abrahamic posterity and their identity as the children of God was as offensive as anything that could be said to them. But then to tell them that it was Satan and not God who was their true father was just beyond the pale. It was just too much. Jesus was telling them this, though, not merely to, to insult them, but rather because it is the truth. And it is the truth that they must understand and recognize in order to see their need of salvation and their need of Him. But their, their pride and their national identity and the sinfulness of their own hearts would not allow them to hear the truth. In fact, Jesus said back in verse 45 that it was precisely because He was telling them the truth that they did not believe Him. If He was telling them lies they would have been more willing to believe. The reality is, no matter what one's worldview is, no matter what they believe about the world or about man or about God, if Christ is not at the center of it, then they have built their entire lives around lies. Christ is the truth. 
He is the truth that must be understood in order to see all truth. And it takes supernatural intervention to believe the truth of who Christ is. And that's, that's what we are seeing here. The Jews are hearing the truth from the one who is the truth, and they cannot bear it. And because of that, they, they now resort to slander and insults. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Among the Jewish people, those words were about as insulting as they could be. Remember, as we discussed back in chapter 4, the Jews absolutely hated and despised the Samaritans. This was a racial slur. The Samaritan history dates back to the children of Israel who were left behind in the exile and intermarried with the pagan Assyrians. So for the Jews, the Samaritans were turncoat half-breeds who had turned their backs on the true God and on their people. They despised the Samaritans more than they even despised Gentiles. And that's why John said back in chapter 4, the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. To the Jew, the Samaritans were the scum of the earth. So this was a high-handed insult that they had thrown at Christ. And likely they said this for a couple of reasons. One, it was, it was probably not unknown that Jesus engaged Samaria and had received a massive reception among them, which we saw back at the end of chapter 4. But secondly, building off of what they said to him last week, earlier, implying that Jesus was born of sexual immorality, there's likely some accusation here that Jesus was also a half-breed like the Samaritans due to the immorality of his mother. I mean, why else would you engage such an unclean people as the Samaritans unless you were one of them? And if that wasn't enough, they also threw in there that they also believed him to be demon-possessed. Why? Well, because a demon-possessed man would, would say the things that he was saying. Only a demon-possessed man would, would question the heritage of the Jews. He must have a demon. And this was, a, this was an accusation that they threw at him repeatedly. He, they already threw this out once back in chapter 7. They will make it again in chapter 10. And we see it in the synoptics. In order to try to explain away his miracle power, they accused him both in Matthew 12 and Mark 3 of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And they accused the Holy One of God of being a satanic agent when it was the very opposite that was true. These Jews were willing to come to any conclusion about him in order to avoid the plain truth that they both heard and saw. But at the end of the day, this accusation insult was nothing short of blasphemy against Christ. But what we need to take note of here is how Jesus responds after being publicly slandered and receiving the worst insult that could be thrown at him, look at how he responds. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. 
You could not have a more controlled and calm and focused response than what Christ just displayed. And this is absolutely instructive for us. One thing we need to remember when we are, we are observing this is this is a very different culture than ours. This was, a, this was an honor and shame culture. Honor and shame were a big deal in this culture. It's everything to them. To shame somebody, especially publicly, was, was almost an unthinkable thing to do. And sadly, and to our shame, we live in a culture that just swims in this behavior every day. Dignity is a thing of the past. Even the leaders in our society and politicians can no longer engage one another without hurling the vilest of insults caked in crass language. And we as a culture cheer them on when they do it. And because of that, we're not nearly as scandalized by this passage as we ought to be of how serious of an offense this really was on the part of the Jews. Because this is, this is just everyday behavior for us. But it was not for them. And this, this was a big deal. But Jesus replies, not by reviling in return. He simply denies their accusation. I do not have a demon. And then he contrasts his behavior with theirs. I honor my father, you dishonor me. At this point, they know who he's talking about. He had said to them in verse 42, I came from God. He sent me. So when he says this, he's bringing out the same implications that he already brought out back in chapter 5 when he said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Their dishonoring of Christ was tantamount to dishonoring God the Father, the very one that they claimed to serve. And yet, while they are dishonoring Him, Jesus makes it clear that it is the Father who is working towards the opposite end. He is seeking to bring glory to His Son. And the one seeking the glory of the Son is the judge. Basically, He's saying, you are working in direct contradiction to the purpose of God who will judge you. It should be a terrifying thought to anyone who's actually thinking. But rather than retaliate in kind, and, and, and rather than revile back at them, Jesus just continued to speak the truth while entrusting Himself to the Father who will judge. Now we need to realize that the way that Jesus handled this is the supreme example to us. To us who live in an ever-increasing hostile environment. In fact, we need to remember that even though we haven't heard from them in a while, they haven't been mentioned in a while, there is no doubt that the twelve disciples have been there for this whole scene and are watching this unfold, listening to what's taking place and learning from our Lord. And I really believe that Peter, when he wrote his first epistle, he had this instance in others like it, like Jesus' trial, particularly in mind. In fact, if you want to know how to live out a faithful life in a hostile world, 1 Peter is basically an instruction guide to that end. And it is Jesus' supreme example that he holds up in that letter for believers to emulate. 
And it's what he witnessed in the life of Christ. It's what he's witnessing right here. In fact, 1 Peter 2.23 almost reads like a commentary on this scene. Listen to what he said. Speaking of Jesus, he said, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here Jesus is absolutely being reviled publicly, and he does not revile in return, but rather trusts his Father who is the judge. And we are called to emulate him in that. I fear that this is getting lost among Christians in this this age of of rage that we live in, especially with many so-called Christian influencers who handle themselves in public forum and online debates, just reviling one another and reviling anyone who dares to come against them. It's, it's shameful behavior on display. Don't follow that. In our disagreements with one another and when our ga- engagements with the world, we, we need to remember that we are called, literally called, to follow this example. As Peter goes on to say in his epistle in chapter 3, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I fear that is being lost among many believers of our day. Why are we supposed to engage like that? Because that's what Christ did. Because we are disciples of Christ. We follow Him. When we are reviled, we revile not in return. Just as Christ did. He stayed focused on the truth and on His message rather than defending His person. And right on the heels of speaking of God's judgment that is looming over these Jews, Jesus again holds out a promise of grace and mercy to this hostile audience. Look at verse 51. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's just incredible. The patience and mercy of God with a stubborn and stiff-necked people is beyond comprehension. I mean, what a promise that he issues in this context. If anyone keeps my word, the idea is if anyone trusts in, believes in, remains in who I am and what I have taught, it's synonymous with what we saw back in, in verse 31 when he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. But here he shows the eternal ramification for those who are his true disciples. They will never see death. 
Now, the obvious question is, is what does he mean by this? Because we know his, his followers do die. All of the disciples died. And all of them, except for John, died prematurely at the hands of persecutors. Christian history is not full of people who did not die because they followed Christ. So what does he mean by this? By you will never see death. Well, Jesus has already explained this once, also back in chapter 5. Much of this is just a restatement of what he's already taught. But in chapter 5, verse 24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Those who are trusting in Christ already have eternal life. Eternal life is not just a future reality that you obtain when you die. No, Jesus says His true disciples have already passed from death to life. And to understand this, we need to understand what true death is. True death is not just your, your physical body dying, passing away. True death is entering into judgment and eternal destruction, separated from God. It is enduring His wrath for an eternity. As Jesus told them back in verse 21, it is to die in your sin with the guilt of your sin upon you and to receive the eternal penalty of your sin. But the believer will not see that. Because they've already passed from death to life. What, then what is true life? True, true life is eternal life. As Christ defines it in John 17, it is knowing God. It is union with God. If you are in Christ, eternal life is yours now. You already have immortality. Meaning, who you truly are cannot die. And Jesus says this, he speaks of this again in chapter 11, speaking to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's exactly what he's saying here. Those who keep his word will not see death. Though our, our bodies will die, we will not cease to exist even for a second. Not even for a second. For us who are in Christ, dying is actually a passing from life to life. From glory to glory. And the very second that we take our final breath, we will find ourselves in the presence of the Lord awaiting our final resurrection. It's what's, what's known as the intermediate state, actually. The state between our, our physical death and the final state, which is the resurrection of our bodies when we receive our glorified bodies upon Jesus' return to the earth. But in the intermediate, we will not be entering into what some have defined as soul sleep. That is not a thing. The Bible does not teach that. No, we will be in the very presence of Christ we will be apart from the body, but at home with the Lord, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. 
In Psalm 116, as we read this morning, we will be walking before the Lord in the land of the living, having been transferred from the land of the dying, which is what this world is. This world is the land of the dying. Everyone here, every person who lives on this earth is a dying person. But there we will be in the land of the living. No one is dying. And this is why Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. The thief who trusted in Christ did not die on the cross. He came to life on the cross. And he never died. And neither will you if you are trusting in Him. You will never see death. And what is amazing is it's in the context of this hostility that Jesus holds out this promise once again. In the midst of, of murderous intent towards Christ, Jesus is holding out life to those who wanted His death. But don't think that there weren't any there that were listening. Nicodemus is in this crowd. Jesus' brothers were in this crowd. Many heard. Many had their eyes opened. But a promise of this magnitude, that you will not see death, is entirely contingent on the identity of the one who gave it. In other words, in order for these words to be true... The one who issued them has to have the power and authority to deliver. As the Jews rightly understand, no mere man could make a promise like this. No mere man, no how great he is, could make this promise. Not even the patriarchs or the prophets could make this promise. Look how they respond. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? They're finally starting to get it. They are finally starting to understand what Jesus has been telling them all along. That all of this centers on who He is. But notice the way they frame their final question there. The, the ESV got this right. Who do you make yourself out to be? They're not, they're not just asking, who do you think you are, as the NIV has rendered it, but who do you make yourself out to be? The implication being that Jesus was elevating Himself that he was seeking his own glory, that he is making himself something more than he really is, that he's, he's just elevating himself in the eyes of man. Which again is just totally ironic charge, being that the Jews were notorious for that very thing. They lived their lives for the praise of man. They constantly desired that others would see and celebrate their supposed godliness or their good deeds. They cared not for the approval of God, but for the approval of man. This is why Jesus holds them out as the, the supreme example of what not to do in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6. Don't be like the hypocrites who practice their righteousness before others in order to be seen by others, in order to be elevated in the eyes of man. 
And yet here they are, the very hypocrites who do these things, accusing Christ of the very things that they do every day, of making himself out to be something that he's not. Now, this was projection, if ever there was anything, as they project their own sins upon Christ, which is why Jesus responds in the way he does. Look at verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, this is an incredible statement all the way around. The Jews are only going to respond to that last line. But everything Jesus says here points to his divine identity. As the incarnate Christ, as the, as the God-man, his mission was not to exalt himself. He was not going to exalt himself as Lord over all. If he did that, independent of the Father's appointment of him, then his glory would be nothing. As he says, he would be operating outside of the Father's will and authority. But that's not what's going on. The one seeking his glory was not himself, but it was the Father. The mission that the Father had laid before him was for the purpose of his glory. And notice, notice Christ makes it really clear for them. My Father is the one you claim as your God. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's who I'm speaking of. The one you do not know, but I have known. The conundrum here, though, that Jesus presents for these Jews who know the Scripture is now knowing the identity of the Father as, as the God of Israel. How can Jesus say what he's saying? How can Jesus say that it is God who is seeking his glory? For the God of Israel is the one who says in Isaiah 48 and many other places, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is a refrain of Scripture. We see this everywhere. God seeks His own glory. But yet Jesus is saying that God is seeking His glory. And we know from Philippians chapter, chapter 2 that the glory that is bestowed upon him is the name that is above every name so that at the, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and confess him as Lord. The reality is for the Father to seek the glory of the Son and for the Son to live for the glory of the Father is the triune God exalting his own glory over all the earth. That is what is going on. That is the only way to explain this. Because the end for which God has done everything is His own glory. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the one true triune God, are all working together toward that end. And once we get to the upper room discourse, Jesus will reveal the Spirit's role in all of this. But the only way to make sense of what Jesus says here and what He's about to say is to understand the triune nature of this God. 
But this is God the Son, and God the Father is seeking the Son's glory. A Jehovah's Witness, or a Muslim, or a Mormon, or anyone else who denies the triune nature of God cannot even begin to make sense of this passage, or this entire gospel for that matter. And the Jew would simply see it as blasphemy, which they do. And Jesus, he just continues though, and he, he digs into the point, and he says that Abraham, Abraham saw his day, and he rejoiced over it. Now, we don't know what exactly what is in mind here, what is in reference, how Abraham saw his day, but we know that Abraham had some idea of and faith in the coming Christ. I actually like the way that Calvin says it, speaking of, of all truth faith, especially when considering Old Testament saints. He says, faith has its degrees in beholding Christ. And that's exactly right. Though the, the, the saints of old did not have the, the full revelation of Christ given to the world at the incarnation, they nevertheless had faith in the coming Christ. All the saints of heaven, whether they lived before the cross or after the cross, are there because of Christ. Some just looked forward to it, and others like us look back upon it. Now, David anticipated the Christ. He anticipated a greater son who was his Lord and King. That's why he said, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Psalm 110. Moses anticipated a greater deliverer and a greater prophet than he was. In fact, the, the book of Hebrews even says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was looking to Christ. And I think Abraham anticipated a greater offspring and a greater sacrifice than was his son. God gave him a picture of what was to come when he asked him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. And at the last minute before the knife fell upon his son, God provided a substitute. Abraham, in some way, saw the coming Christ and he looked forward to that day, and he rejoiced over it. But of course, the Jews, because they do not believe what Jesus has been telling them all along, do not see the possibility of this. And they fire off one last retort, based only on what their dead, physical eyes could see. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? The moment of peak hostility. Jesus is now going to give them the clearest statement of his identity. These guys are ready to kill him, and yet he's just going to push it over the edge. And he's going to give them the key to understanding everything. 
Everything he's been teaching, everything he's been doing, everything they've seen, the claims of John the Baptist, the cleansing of the temple, the multiplying of the fish and the loaves, the healing of the sick, the power over demons, the declaration of his identity and mission, the promises of eternal life, the unity with his Father, every word all points to this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus phrased this in such a way where the implications are absolutely inescapable. This is a direct claim to be Yahweh to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the God who delivered his people out of Egypt. He is the God of of Israel, here in the flesh, standing before them. And notice, this is not just about about pre-existence. You know, some some groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses want to make it about pre-existence in order to claim that Jesus was a God, but not the God But if that was the case, he would have said, before Abraham was, I was. He would have kept the tenses the same. But instead, he awkwardly changes the tense of the verb on purpose in order to point to this greater reality. Before Abraham was, I am. He is the God who revealed himself to Moses in the Exodus when he said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That was Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ meeting with Moses in the bush. This was not about pre-existence. This was about self-existence. Jesus is the self-existent God, the one who has life in himself, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the one who was and is and is to come. This language is similar to what Moses said in Psalm 90 and can rightly be applied to Christ. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Jesus is not a created being. He is the author of creation, having entered his creation, and he is the everlasting God. And despite how various heretical groups try to escape this language, the Jews actually did not. They finally get it. They finally understand what it is that is his claim. The tragedy is they didn't believe it. The God they claim to love and serve is standing in their midst and they pick up stones to kill Him. To kill their own God who has come in the flesh and is standing before them. As Jesus says, their actions reveal who they really are. Not children of God, but children of the devil. And though Jesus came to die, he would not die on their timetable or in this way. The Father's plan will be completed. Scripture will be fulfilled. They will pierce his hands and his feet. He will be raised up on a cross. That is coming. And for that reason, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Unquestionably, there's a supernatural aspect to this escape with all the people and all the guards 
everywhere in the temple, in the midst of this temple, there is no way that he could escape except a supernatural intervention. But his hour had not yet come. Jesus knew this would be the outcome. He knows all things. He knew that they were going to try to kill him. And he knew that eventually they will kill him. But he persisted in that hostile environment and continued to point them to the truth. To fulfill his mission, to glorify his Father, and to save a people for himself. There are cosmic realities to this world that are so much greater than what we can see with our eyes. There's always war going on, but it is a war for the truth. It is a war for souls. And we need to be an eternally minded people. A people with our eyes firmly fixed upon the resurrected Christ who is Lord over all, ruling over this sin-cursed world as we speak. Everything that we live for as His followers is wrapped up in Him and His purposes. We need to realize we are hanging our hopes on on the promises of the One who is the eternal God. The One who is from everlasting and to everlasting. Who came in love and took on flesh and died in our sins so that we would not have to. When He issued This promise that anyone who keeps His Word will not see death, not only will He deliver on that promise, not only can He deliver on that promise, but He's already achieved it. It's done. And He will see to it that it comes to pass in your life. You who believe, you will not see death. Christ will see to it. You who are born again have already passed from death to life. And when you physically pass from this earth, you're just passing from life to life. You will be transferred from the land of the dying into the land of the living to be with the Lord. And because of these eternal realities and our our confidence in who He is, we are freed up. Freed up to engage this world in the same manner in which he did. To participate in what he is doing. In God's plan of redemption. To love a world that is going to hate us. To speak the truth to a people who are hostile to the truth. To be faithful to the mission and message that Christ has given us. And as we do, God will continue to do what only He can do, which is to make His enemies His own people. To transform hearts and lives and to grant eternal life to undeserving sinners. Don't keep that good news to yourself. The Eternal One has promised life to all who believe. May we be a people who are faithful to Him and faithful to His message no matter what it costs us. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that You are the God of all mercy. 
that you saw fit to bestow your mercy upon us. Thank you for your Son, who is the eternal God. Thank you that he came and bore our sin. Thank you that he died our death. And that he rose from the grave and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne, ruling and reigning over this earth until the time when his enemies we made his footstool forever. Lord, we look forward to that day when his final enemy is defeated, when death is no more, and the saying has come to pass, O oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? We look forward to that day when we are transformed into his likeness, and we will shine as his reflection. Lord, help us to be faithful until that day. Help us to be proclaimers the excellencies of Christ and to see the hostility of this world is only a reflection of its great need which is your son go with us in power Lord keep us faithful to the end we pray